This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. We'll be freed from the duality of self and other. We'll be freed from the duality of us and them. We'll be freed from the duality of animate and inanimate, familiar and unfamiliar, freed from the duality of love and fear, freed from the duality of harmony and discord, freed from the duality of creature and spirit, freed from the duality of good and evil. And it's interesting to see what kinds of feelings come up for me as I do these other, these other pairs, these other pairings. So the whole line is, one who leads the way will be freed from, etc. And what is the way? Um, the way, of course, is um, one of the things that we're curious about. And um, for me, one of the things that I, I try on for size over and over is, is, is something like this. Perhaps the way is being able to sense what the wholeness of the world, what the wholeness of existence needs in any given moment and act accordingly. And for me also the way includes being able to notice when I have not acted from a place of wholeness, to forgive myself for this and be curious about what was keeping me from wholeness in that particular moment. That's been a been helpful. And, and that suggests to me another version of that final line of the sutra. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of good boy or bad boy. Perhaps also it's useful to look at this phrase and take it as if it's not strictly um, an if-then relationship, but maybe it's sort of bidirectional. So I read as one who has been freed from the duality of birth and death will achieve the way. Or more generally, one who is unattached to duality can act from wholeness. Well, I'd like to I'd like to talk a bit about um, something that I a duality of between creature and spirit. Um, it, it helps me usually to sort of look at it, to dwell in the duality and maybe look at aspects of, of, of my experience that feel like creature aspects and look at aspects of my own experience that feel like spirit aspects and, and maybe see how the two connect. So regarding, regarding this creature that I inhabit, this, this creature that I am, what am I? Um, I like the following ideas about what I am. Um, I'm starshine and dust and rain, having a look around before returning to the sky. I am mud and energy and love, sitting up and singing a song and dancing a jig before lying back down into the mud. And if I went ahead in a kind of a reductionist direction, a physicality direction about my creature, I'm reminded that, you know, when I was a school, school child, I was taught that um, my body and all the other sort of animal critters and plant critters are made up of cells. And uh, each cell's got like a border, it's got a cell wall around it. And the cell's fundamental job is to keep certain substances and structures on the outside of the cell and to keep certain structures and substances on the inside of the cell wall. So, and then this cell is sort of the foundation of all, the, all of the architecture of, of, of our creatures. And, um, and it seems to me cells themselves, from what we know of them, they're pretty fiercely dualistic about self and other, inside and outside. So it's no surprise then that um, 
that the awareness that resides inside of this particular creature that's built up of cells is pretty good at tuning into um, pretty dualistic ways of looking at things. And uh, so the connection between creature and spirit, I, I feel that it's helpful for me these days to think of this creature that I inhabit is essentially an antenna for awareness, an antenna for spirit, an instrument of spirit. It's been helpful me, for me to, and encouraging for me to consider that the awareness that I experience is everything in the entire universe working together since the beginning of time, since the beginning of all things, up through this very moment to somehow open up a window, to somehow open up a window through which it can watch itself. This is spirit. And the exquisitely specific and particular way that my creature has been put together and tumbled about shapes my spirit antenna, shapes the antenna that I have, shapes the ways in which it's sensitive to certain kinds of aspects of awareness or spirit and somewhat um, insensitive or blind to other aspects of spirit or awareness. And keeping this in mind, um, a, a vow, kind of a vow that I remind myself up, that I've seen recently that, that seems helpful. So keeping this in mind, I, I remind myself to vow to recognize that what I can sense is nearly nothing compared to all that is presenting itself to me. And the awareness that I experience is often glued to a narrative about this specific creature's journey from womb to grave. And sometimes it isn't. Those times that it's not sort of glued to that narrative are pretty wonderful. They can be very healing. Those who achieve the way will be freed from the duality of womb and grave, freed from the duality of expanded and contracted. Our particular kind of creature, this human creature that, that our awareness inhabits, is a, very, is a social creature. And not just social because of shared culture and language or customs, this creature chassis that we inhabit is fundamentally unable to survive outside of a very, outside of a tribe, except in very narrow circumstances, very rare circumstances. Maybe circumstances in which the weather conditions are mild enough and the landscape is fruitful enough that um, that an individual creature could survive and reproduce without societal organism constructs like clothing and tools and knowledge that's been passed on from people that came before us. And it feels to me um, one of the sources of friction in our lives these days. It seems to me that a growing fraction of our um, population believes that what they what they accomplish or possess is due to some kind of individual effort or aptitude. But at the same time, the societal organism in which we dwell continues to move toward an even greater interdependency and distributed skills. For example, um, an individual can show another individual how to gather up materials from their surroundings in order to control control how to break rocks so that you can create an edge or a point or something like that. One person can show that to another person and, another, and one person might happen on figuring that out themselves. But, um, but for a person to gain the ability to use a telephone, for example, there's countless people and countless skills involved in gathering the materials and the fuels and 
all the various things that must uh, sort of dovetail just so in order for a working telephone to exist and to be used. And as this gap between the illusion of individuality and the reality of ever-deepening interdependence um, grows, and as an existential tension grows within us also, it's the tension of denial, and it's a tension that comes from a kind of dishonesty. Um, at the root of our rapid expansion, of the rapid expansion of this human societal creature on this planet, at the root of it is perhaps um, something that we take for granted, um, simply storytelling. Um, the ability to make one another aware of things that are not of here and now. That's, that's I'm going to shorthand refer to that as storytelling. We take this for granted, um, and uh, although it's relatively new in sort of you know geologic time scale, uh, I've heard that this sort of storytelling capacity um, really didn't exist till only about seventy thousand years ago, and that's just you know a, a super short period of time compared to the number of years. Um, our creatures have been evolving on this planet. That's something like three and a half billion years. But storytelling is um, it's really it's astonishingly powerful, really powerful. It's allowed the human societal organism to have a memory that is longer and more stable than any individual's memory. And it's allowed our individual awarenesses to be augmented and enhanced. So I want to talk about a specific example of this, how our storytelling capability has really vastly um, improved or widened our scope of awareness. Um, and before I tar start talking about this, I'll, I'll warn that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to use some numbers, and I'm going to use some very large numbers. In fact, large enough numbers that I think they, um, that they approach the, the, the concept of kalpa, and I always like revisiting kalpa. I, I, it was explained to me what a kalpa was once, and kalpa was something we did in the chant that started this talk off. Um, um, an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is seldom met with even in 100,000 million kalpas. And I wondered, what, what is a kalpa? And kalpa, I heard one definition of a kalpa, which was a kalpa is the, the length of time it takes for an eagle who is dangling a silk thread from its talons to, to fly over the peak of a, a mountain and drag the silk across the peak of the mountain. And each time the silk touches that mountaintop, it wears a little bit of the mountain off. And a kalpa is the time it takes for that, for that eagle to fly back and forth, dragging the silk thread across the top of the mountain until the mountain is reduced to rubble. So that's a kalpa. It's a really long period of time. And I think that kind of quantity, that kind of thing is going to come up here as I describe this thing I want to describe. So, so bear with me here. So if we look at, if I look at this sort of individual naked ape that I am, and I take a look at what is my, what is my power of discernment in terms of the size of things? What's my power of discernment? Um, just as an individual person that doesn't have any stories rattling around in my head, but just has to directly observe size and try to compare the smallest thing I can really kind of get a grip on to sort of the biggest thing that I can, as a personal, single, naked ape, get a handle on. And this, you know, I, I came up with some, you know, one end and another end on, on, but you might you might think of other ways to to think of the smallest thing that you can detect or sort of have a grasp of and the, the biggest thing. And so what I came up with was something like the, the smallest thing I can sort of get a feel for and sort of see and maybe touch and get a visceral personal feel for is uh, maybe the silk thread of a spider. And that turns out that's maybe about 30 microns wide. 
and you might be able to think of finer things that you can discern, but let's just go with the, the 30 microns for the spider thread. And then I, I thought, well, what's the, what's the furthest, what's the biggest thing I could possibly get a, a visceral feel for as an individual creature just moving around on the landscape? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe if by chance I was standing atop the tallest mountain in the world and there was kind of two of these tallest mountains in the world and they were separated just ideally far away so that the curvature of the earth wasn't cutting off view one view of the other and I, so I could see from one peak to the other peak and I could somehow navigate from the peak I was standing on walk all the way to that other peak I, I couldn't think of anything that was sort of larger than that but and that's I mean, that might be crazy could, could a person really do that and keep track of the number of steps who knows but them and I walk from one to the other that's about 420 miles so if I compare um, 420 miles to 30 microns it turns out that that's about a 2 times 10 to the 11th difference like the the mountain dis the distance between the mountains is about 2 times 10 to the 11th or I guess it's uh, maybe it's uh, 20 trillion or something like that. So I'm going to work in scientific notation. It'll all fall away when I kind of get to some of the punchlines, so you don't need to track them. Um, so 2 times 10 to the 11th. So, but what about this societal, this human societal organism that, I, that we reside within? What are the, the, what's the smallest thing that it's, it, it has some capacity to measure or talk about? And what's the largest thing? Well, the, the smallest thing I could come up with as I you know, poked around was there's these, these subatomic particles that make up neutrons and protons and electrons. And these subatomic, subatomic particles are called quarks. And there's all different flavors of quarks. Generally speaking, quarks are, they're really small. They're about one times 10 to the 19th, negative 19th. 1 times 10 to the minus 19 uh, meters, really small. And then the biggest thing that we're trying to wrap our collective mind around is maybe the, the size of the, of the universe, the current size of the universe. And that's something like um, 93 billion across. That's a lot of meters, it turns out. That's about 8.8 .8 times 10 to the 26th meters. So for the individual ape, the range was about 2 times 10 to the 11th. But when I compare the size of a quark to the size of the universe, I get a, um, I get a span for this collective, for our collective consciousness is more like 8.8 .8 times 10 to the 45th. So 2 times 10 to the 11th compared to 8.8 .8 times 10 to the 45th. So let's take the ratio of those two things. So how much, how much more powerful in terms of, you know, looking at the size of things is our collective consciousness than our individual ape consciousness? So we take the ratio and you come up with something like 4.4 times 10 to the 34th. This is, a, this is kind of a culpa, culpa kind of scale here. So now we'll do, now we'll do the game of, okay, two, uh, 4 times 10 to the 34th. How big a number is that? So let's try to put that in some terms that we might be able to wrap our heads around. Okay. Our species of creature, Homo sapiens, has been around for a couple hundred thousand years. And it's thought that in that time, there's been about 100 billion of us. There's like 8 billion of us now. But throughout all, all the way back till the first ones seem to have appeared, there's only been about 100 billion of us. And over that period of time, if you, if you, if you just list, I pulled out of the air, I, let's say the average lifespan of each one of these creatures that's ever lived was 50 years. Of course, it's longer than that now. Maybe it was longer than that a long time ago. I don't know, but let's say 50 years. And let's say that typically these human creatures 
in their 50 years, their heart was beating at an average of 60 beats per minute. Okay? So, if you take that, all of those people, 100 billion people, for their entire 50-year lifespans, and you count all of the heartbeats that ever happened, you come up with something like 1 times 10 to the 20th heartbeats. But remember, we're shooting for something in the order of 10 to the 34th. So that kind of implies that for every heartbeat of every human being that's ever lived, our collective consciousness has an ability to conceive of and quantify length, which is about 330 trillion times more than that of an individual creature. I apologize if that was tedious and annoying. I had fun with it. So, but there's a shadow side to this collective consciousness, to you know what makes this collective consciousness function, which is that our creatures, you know, before storytelling happened, story t- uh, our creatures evolved for about three and a half billion years, and. Uh, all of that evolution happened before storytelling. So that primarily this chassis that we, that, that this human collective lives upon, it was designed to and optimized for being aware of uh, what is right in front of us, what's right here and right now. It wasn't designed to contend with symbolic language and things and happenings that aren't really part of our own direct experience. A quark is not part of my direct experience. The 93 billion light years is not part of my um, direct experience. So at some level it's a bit disorienting and overwhelming to to constantly be in the deluge of uh, these cultural symbols, these facts and stories that that our culture are, are continually, uh, continuously throwing at us. So here's an example of kind of the difference between cultural symbols and language and uh, our own visceral connection with here and now. Have you ever been ready to get ready to go somewhere? You're with somebody, you're in, you're in your house and you're both getting ready to go and you're a little bit slower than, than your friend, and your friend makes it out the door first and is standing outside and experiencing the sun and the sky and the wind and everything. But you're inside, you're still, you're still with your face in the closet trying to decide what jacket to wear. And you say, hey, what's it like out there? And your friend says, oh, it's, it's kind of cold. And you go, oh, kind of cold. And you reach in the closet and you pull out your heaviest coat and you put it on, and you come out, and the two of you start moving across the landscape, and you realize, God, it's not cold. I'm way too hot. Why did I choose this stupid jacket? And part of you was like blaming your friend because you listened to what they told you rather than just stepping out the door and seeing what it was like outside. So... Go back to this, um, back to this idea of uh, the societal creature, the societal organism that we live in. Or maybe I don't need to repeat that. Do I need to skip forward? No, I'm going to go back to that. So, so again, most of the evolutionary pressure that shaped our type of creature, from the time of first known life three and a half billion years ago until about seventy thousand years ago. Most of that evolutionary pressure, evolutionary pressure was informed by a reality in which the creatures spent the majority of their time personally interacting with the deep reality of the natural environment. The sky, the sun, the earth, the wind. And they spent time searching a landscape for food, avoiding physical dangers, personally finding ways to adjust to changing temperatures, changing moisture conditions, changing lighting conditions. But in the past few centuries, things have evolved very, have changed very rapidly for humans. And now the majority of our attention 
is devoted to processing cultural signals, which mostly come to us in symbolic form. And as the attention of the social creature becomes dominated by signals that came from the social creature itself, our collective awareness becomes further and further removed from the deep realities of sun, sky, wind, and earth. And so this reminds me of another kind of physics-y thing. Um, and, uh, and it's a concept that arises over and over as physicists try to, under, try to understand why things behave the way they do. And it's this idea of the ratio between the surface area of an object and its volume. It turns out to be pretty important in explaining how things behave. So for a simple solid object like a sphere, as you, if it's a small sphere, it has a relatively a lot of surface area per unit volume. As it grows, as it gets bigger and bigger, the, um, the, the, the ratio of the amount of surface area that there is relative to the amount of stuff that's on the inside gets smaller and smaller. And this has some real interesting consequences. So for example, if you have a small sphere and, and a much larger sphere that are both at the same cold temperature, they've been sitting in a freezer forever, and they're both uniformly cold all the way through, and you take the small sphere and the big sphere out, and you set them in a warm room, the middle of the small sphere is going to get warm much quicker than the middle of the large sphere. And that's not too surprising. And if you just think about the distance from the skin of the sphere to the center, and the distance from the, from the skin of the big sphere to the center, it's not surprising that you know, it takes a finite amount of time for the heat to move. But this, area, uh, this concept of surface area is a, a little more general and a little more useful. So, um, so I feel like the surface area, that is the, the surface area of our societal organism, that is the part of our societal organism that's in actual contact with the deep realities of sun and sky and wind and rain, is it's getting smaller relative to the size of the societal organism itself. Not only due to sheer numbers, but because of the way the organism is now organized and the way it, it functions with so much time spent just listening to cultural signals and living in constructed environments and whatnot. So a smaller and smaller fraction of our societal organism is actually aware of the deep realities. For most of us, our awareness is just flooded with these cultural signals from other people. And the thing is, is that some, I feel like some important spiritual nutrients, they get lost in the conversion from first-hand experience to cultural signal in a, in a way that's very similar to how um, vitamins and enzymes get lost as you process food. You, you dig up food, dig up a potato from the field, and if you eat it right away, you get all kinds of enzymes and vitamins. But if you, you know, if you slice it, if you grind it up and dry it and then push it back together and cook it and put some flavor spray on it. It doesn't quite have as much nutrition to it. So some significant part of our habitual or conditioned mind is always kind of busy processing these human cultural signals. We receive the signals and we sort of selectively pass them along. Sometimes we don't pass them along. We each generate these cultural signals intentionally and sometimes inadvertently. Sometimes, like the clothing you're wearing sends a, a signal to somebody that you didn't intend for them to get. In my experience in this study, this Buddhist study, this Zen Buddhist study, one of the deep benefits that I, that I got out of doing a long silent meditation retreat was that the rate of arrival of cultural signals starts to drop off, starts to get pretty low. You're not listening to anybody talk, you're not reading anything, and your meditative practice is encouraging you to not dwell on the stories that are going on in your mind, but to redirect towards what do things smell like? What's the temperature? You know, how much pressure is on my feet? What's my breath doing? Um, 
And in doing that sort of practice and being um, not having new inputs for a long enough period of time, part of our minds get to calm down, and you get to you get to see parts of your awareness which are typically occupied by cultural signaling and symbolic thought, and those parts become still. And you and, and I've been able to um, to see feelings and other aspects of my awareness that are typically kind of masked by the chaos of. Not the chaos, but like the, the, the functioning of this societal organism of which I'm a part. And I feel like we exist in a nearly constant tension between the creatures that we are and the forms and the demands of this human societal creature that we exist within. There's a... Um, there's this sociobiologist named uh, E. O. Wilson who uh, summarized things this way. He's alluding to some very similar things when he said, the current fundamental problem of humanity is that we have Paleolithic brains. So he's referring to the architecture that just evolved in response to the deep realities rather than other things. So, fundamental problem of humanity is that we have Paleolithic brains, we have medieval institutions, and by that he means, I think, all of these conventions and um, practices we have for managing the societal organism that we're part of, representative governments, um, uh, going to war, things like this. These are all really pretty archaic. They, they were developed a long time ago. Long time relative to how quickly things are changing now, anyway. So we have Paleolithic brains, we have medieval institutions, but we have godlike technology and tools. So our brains and institutions aren't really well equipped or evolved um, to be able to deal with the um, incredible power of our tools and our technology. And we're especially ill-equipped to deal with um, something that he calls chronic long-term diffuse harm. Or maybe that wasn't Wilson, maybe that was someone else. But I like that, that's really catchy. I'm going to say it again. Chronic long-term diffuse harm. So these are things that you know build up over, these are practices that the societal organism has that create some kind of collateral damage or some kind of externality that just slowly builds up over time and pushes our environment or pushes something to a tipping point. Um, and then do we tip past that point? Things start to happen really quickly. They start to change really quickly in a way that is not really pleasant. Um, so, a, cu a couple of examples of things that are chronic, long-term, diffuse harms are um, things like global environmental degradation and systemic white privilege. These things creep up on us and it's really hard for us as individuals to be able to um, understand the impact that they're going to have. Just, you know, a little smidge, a little smidge, a little smidge, but a little smidge goes over hundreds and hundreds of years and then things build up and start to collapse. Another example of um, chronic, long-term, diffuse harm, which is actually, I think, relatively new compared to these other things, compared to environmental degradation and compared to uh, white privilege, is, um, is something that we're experiencing now, something that's kind of, that, that we're all experiencing now, has to do with um, uh, internet and cheap rapid mass communication, cheap, rapid, unfiltered mass communication. Um, 
And in some cases, it's not just unfiltered, but there are um, tools, very powerful tools being used in order to grab a little bit of each one of our attentions um, to keep us watching things. Um, so so like there, there are for-profit technologies um, and they depend on getting people's attention and keeping people's attention. And the way they do this is a little insidious. You know, if, if they're just trying to keep your attention and it, it isn't really their, their, their primary focus is whether or not they have your attention, not whether or not there's any collateral damage or any kind of externality associated with the way in which they got their attention or the way in which they're holding your attention. Um, this sort of chronic, long-term, diffuse harm builds up. And we're starting, starting to see this already because this, it's become so widespread so quickly that many of us spend time looking at our computers and looking at the internet. Um, so I'll read a sentence here that I got from somewhere else, but it says something like, in for-profit media technologies, people in an audience are worth more to the, to, the, to the technologies if the people are polarized, enraged, and misinformed because this keeps them watching. It keeps them scared, keeps them watching. The externalities, the collateral damage we we're already seeing from this kind of thing is that, is that we're seeing shortened attention spans, mass narcissism, mental health issues, addictions, and I think very importantly, the destruction of common truths and common facts, the debasing of common truths and common facts. I'm going to pause for a second and see what time it is. Okay. All right, I've got a couple more things I'd like to say. I'd, look to, I'd like to back up again and go back to the closing line of the Metta Sutra. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. The way, I think, is shorthand for the middle way. And the middle way is something that we're urged to find when confronted with an apparent choice or with points of view which appear to be in conflict. The middle way can be seen when we pause and find a perspective which reveals the vast spaciousness surrounding both choices or both points of view. When we find a perspective which shows that the differences between the two are far less important than the similarities. There's a story that's often been told around here about how um, Traditionally, Buddhist monks in their training or in their lives would, um, in order to get fed, they would go from door to door in the, the community that surrounded the temple and ask that householders put some food into their bowl. And when I was first told, to, first told about this story or first aware of this practice, I was, I was struck by how different it seems to you know, be a person that has to go and go to someone's door and put, hold up your bowl and, and see whether or not food is put into it, how different that seems from being a person that has a house and gets food when they want it at the market or, um, or grows food in their little garden and prepares it whenever they want. Seem, those seem like vastly different things, profoundly different. But, uh, but how different are they? Um, how, how important is any kind of difference there is in the beggar's bowl or the householder who's putting food into the beggar's bowl, how different is that importance, uh, how important is that difference to the field where the food was grown? Does this difference influence the way that the plants grew or how the sun shone upon them? How does this small difference influence what the food becomes a day after it's eaten, or to the sewage system where the digested food winds up. Those who, achieve, those who have achieved the way will be freed from the duality of food and poop. 
And how different is it to be a householder giving the food or the monk? How different is it to be the householder or the monk um, receiving the food? When I give to another person, no matter how grand or timely or graceful the gesture, I remind myself that what was passed along came to me through a chain of circumstances and intentions which began at the beginning of all things and that the giving occurred largely for this simple reason. I did not get in the way of it happening. Those who have achieved the way will be freed from the duality of giver and receiver. They will be freed from the duality of emperor and beggar. Okay, enough about duality. Although maybe one more, one more thing. Those who achieve—why is this like getting fatigued? I guess. Those who achieve the way will be freed from the duality of duality and non-duality. Um, thank you again for bearing with me through that. Thanks for your kind attention. Um, I'd, I'm very curious, Very would love to hear what any of you um, what came up for any of you, or any comments or questions. And uh, so, thank you very much. Um, and it's not up to me to unmute people. Maybe someone else can take care of that, or folks might unmute themselves. Um, oh, uh, Ben, I see Ben, did your, did your hands? Yes, um, I will call out anybody that has uh, anything to say, just guess out to me. I'll start by asking my own question. You. I really like that. Uh, the freeing from duality of duality conclusion that you made. Um, how do you feel that can be put into practice? What immediately comes to mind is um, duality, non-duality thing is a useful scaffolding for examining and examining examining cultural habits of mind. Um, and um, so it's a form or a scaffolding. But if I too rigidly keep looking out at the world and listening and going how and grabbing it and saying how does, how does that fit into this this um, this schema of dualistic or non-dualistic? If I do, I think that's a useful way place to start but then I think that that practice, that habit of mind, um, will open up ways of perceiving, perceiving from a place of wholeness, and that that the practice of examining the question of dual or non-dual that can just sort of fall away. Um, so, and I think it'll it will fall away naturally on its own accord if one's not too attached to it. And one can get attached to it if, um, if they find that using that scaffold, that, that sort of um, intellectual bit of scaffolding, if it comes up with a couple juicy nuggets, the person wants more juicy nuggets, so they might say, oh, I tried this trick before, I'm just gonna keep trying it over and over because I want to get more of those uh, little epiphanies and things. So just to be somewhat careful to not be attached to that or any other intellectual technique or method of observation that, um, that uh, you know, yielded results at one time because it won't yield results forever and being attached to it will certainly get in the way of other kinds of insights, other kinds of uh, realizations being able to get in. 
and I'm reminded of um, one crucial thing about the human collective organism that needs to shift right now is that so many, so many of our assumptions and practices were developed in times and places where the world seemed infinite, where it seemed like there was always a new, fresh boundary to step across and find um, more resources, uh, more space. And now it's quite clear that we're in what's called a full world, and our practices and our habits of mind need to be um, very aware of this full world aspect of things. And maybe the world's the world is probably has has been full the entire time, but it's only now that we're kind of realizing how full it actually is. And that old habit of mind which said, "All right, I'm going to take this idea and go somewhere else and try to make it happen." There's no there's nowhere there's nowhere else anymore. If you if there's something that feels right and needs to happen, maybe this doesn't seem perfect, the perfect time or place, but we got to try to start making it happen now. Doug, I see Doug. Yeah, um, I, I excellent talk, um, but I um, I'm drawn here now to uh, your talking of limitations of globally. Uh-huh. And um, uh, the juxtaposition of limitations of stuff globally and this uh, primary issue we have right now of not, uh, it's called white privilege when in fact it is white supremacy. Okay. And having been through many examples with, uh, in, in my life, and, and I can look back and I say it, it was it's a, is it a privilege, but it was actually a, uh, an ingrained systemic supremacy. Yeah. And so it's important, I think, to drop the word privilege and use the word supremacy. The second thing, another thing I, I, um, is, is when there is not enough, then sharing uh, privilege, narrative, and power become difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I challenge your notion of the limitations mm -hmm. uh, we have globally. The opportunities each one of us have are actually boundless. Mm. And the amount of resources it takes for us, depending on what we want to do, of course, with those resources is, uh, you know, we have to be considerate of other people. But I think um, we have to uh, look at the boundlessness of things too, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to be able to come to a place where globally we can share the privileges with everyone, share resources and power with everyone. Yeah. So, um, thank Yeah, you. thank you for that. Um, first I'll start with, um, yeah, I, I really agree. I, I also resonate with and I feel like it's appropriate to talk about white supremacy. And I feel like you and I and other people here at Jokoji recently, we all were, we all had the chance to listen to a talk by Brene Brown that was on the internet in which it was very, very elegantly described why that's important to just frame it as white supremacy. And I felt that I didn't know how many people had seen that talk or had, and I, I felt like um, white privilege was less confusing in, in that moment in my talk when I didn't know what my audience had, had recently been exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a, a good, I think it is good. I, um, yeah, systemic white supremacy um, is definitely, um, we, need, we need to call it what it is and, uh, and start sharing privilege resources, narrative, um, absolutely, um, across the board. And I like, um, I think the other thing that you said harkens to this idea of a scarcity mindset or a uh, abundance mindset. And I think you were encouraging us to, you know, not look at resource, at this, at this juncture to be careful to not go, there's only a certain amount of stuff to go around. I think it, in some ways it's accurate to say that um, 
there's plenty to go around, that we, sh- we should function from a place of abundance as we figure out how to um, welcome a broader spectrum of narratives mm-hmm. and um, dismantle systemic white supremacy. That we need to go at it from a place of abundance and be careful not to, because we're a little scared, go, oh my gosh, no, that's frightening. Uh, and, and, and retreat into this scarcity sort of mindset. And I'd be, and I do want to say that um, the way that the the industrialization of our planet is prob- problematic, no matter who's at the helm and how those how the resources that are how the, these short-term benefits that we're seeing are distributed amongst the peoples of the planet. The way the planet is being harnessed and burdened and poisoned is problematic. Mm-hmm. And I want to be, you know, I, I, and I, I'll draw a line there. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Um, but, but there's enough to go around. There's clearly enough to go around. You know, it's, if, if, if people weren't so harried by um, even even privileged people these days are harried by expectations of of uh, uh, just r- ridiculously fast turnaround on things, trying to get everything done so quickly and trying to do so many different things that there's so little time to just breathe and take as much attention as feels like is appropriate to a task at hand without watching the clock. Clocks, clocks are a big problem. There's, there's some useful things about clocks and people running, running systems on the clock, but it's, clocks are mostly like a side effect of industrial processes and a side effect of war processes. And yeah, is it time for um, Yeah. No, this, this, this notion of clock, there are there's still significant and beautiful cultures in the world that, you know, they, they don't watch the clock at all. They, they make an agreement that, yeah, we're going to look at this together. And, uh, and, uh, and it happens eventually, but it doesn't happen at 9 a.m. Monday. It just happens sometime. Uh, I see uh, Karen's hands in Gasho. I'd like to invite Karen to. Um, yeah, for, I'll start with just a thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Hogan, for this uh, wonderful, wonderful talk. I think um, as I was listening to it, I was in um, in constant uh, in in constant agreement, or I don't know what the right word is with all the things you described, uh, starting from duality and just the wonderful exercise of uh, switching that last bit uh, of the Metta Sutra and switching it with the different forms of duality and how you took that into um, kind of like um, into the current context with defining uh, society as that or organism and as that social creature and like i've i've been thinking on those lines also and just like hearing you um articulate it uh, in that way that was quite refreshing and i've heard of your talks in the past as well and just it was really really <clears throat> great to hear those things um and so it was all quite wonderful and then i had uh, a bunch of a uh, bunch of uh, questions. Um, um, and so I'll, I'll just start with a curiosity question. I just wanted to, I could just see, um, and I had a few of them. So I, I just want to start with a curiosity question. I could, I, I could just see the delight uh, on your face as you were um, describing the numbers associated with um, the mountains and, and um, and the comparisons between how what what an individual can measure and what society can measure, and I could just like see the scientist um, in you like re- taking really a lot of delight in it, and I just wanted to understand um, <clears throat> if you could say a bit about that, as in like what you enjoy about those things, um, and just I just wanna it will be nice for me to hear, 
And then the second question um, I had was around um, this this exercise uh, or like I, I see myself doing that also and I see it in our talks uh, is there is this um, there's this want in us to kind of explain things like we kind of like we want to really make sense of uh, all that is going around us when we like classify all of these things as the social or organism and what's going on and uh, I was I was wondering uh, in in your case, where that where does that come from uh, in this this um, this drive to or like I don't know what to call it um, this drive to explain things or or just make sense of all of this. So from your personal experience, what what motivates you to do all of those things? That was the second thing, and the third thing was uh, when you spoke about. Um, uh, the duality between the beggar and uh, one who goes from door to door and um, and asks for 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 food for um, <clears throat> uh, for for some sort of food to go by um, the it reminded me of the story of the Buddha that he was uh, he he would he would just survive based on daily dana and um, and so my my interpretation of that was that that was coming from a place of universal trust that only somebody who could who trusted existence as it is would just like not even worry about food and just go door to door and get the food they want and and that's it and so i wanted to get your views on that as well that do you think that um the practice of just begging for food is coming from a place of universal trust or, or is it something else? So these three things, just to summarize uh, your fascination with the numbers and then this exercise of like explaining everything, where does that come from? And then the begging, uh, uh, do you think that comes from a place of universal trust? Thank you so much for um, at the end there summarizing and, and, uh, reminding me of uh, your questions. Well, to the first, um, I think I heard you say you, you noticed a bit of joy in me as I was fooling around with the numbers. And um, it's a place I'm very comfortable. Um, I had the, the happenstances of where I was born and when I was born had me in a in a uh, community and in a Oops. is everybody else here Hogan or is it just me no uh, the video froze the, yeah and about yeah it looks like we lost the connection to Jakoji but they're right back they're back now so Let's see, where, where do we go? There he is, okay. Hi. Um, let's see, I'll try to, I'll make a guess and back up. Oh, and, and am I, I'm audible again? Everyone can hear me? Can I get a thumb? On the first point, Hogan, you're explaining your privilege to grow up in a circumstance, then, then it cut off. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just, um, yeah, it was, born in a time and place where uh, I was really encouraged and supported to uh, look at things through a sort of scientific lens and uh, um, practice with and be very comfortable with uh, mathematics and numbers and things like that. And that started at a very early age. My father was a, uh, was a university professor of uh, materials, science and engineering, which is kind of a uh, applied physics and applied chemistry field. and. Um, he loved what he did, and uh, he saw the world through that lens all the time and uh, shared with me what he saw and how he saw it and shared with me the tools that he used to uh, see it in that sort of scientific way. And I had the great fortune to be supported by the world in um, studying along those lines 
for many, many years and practicing for many years along those lines. So it's very familiar territory to me and uh, it's not something I, I practice very frequently these days, um, but it's um, kind of like getting on a bike again, I guess. It feels, feels good, feels very familiar. Um, did that cover both one and two? I think we lost him again. I think so too. Yeah, we gotta. Okay, we're back again. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm gonna pretend like I I covered one and two in a sense. But what was the third thing that Karin asked? Karin, can you remind me? It was. Um, it was. I wanted your uh, feedback on this on my interpretation of a Buddha being. Um, choosing to live on food given by, uh, as dana by others. Thank you. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So my feedback is that your, your, your um, interest in that is beautiful. And what I would encourage you to do with this is to imagine what would it be like for Karn? What imagines it? For the foreseeable future, he is just going to trust that the that the world is going to somehow provide that the that the bounty of the world, that the generosity of human beings is going to somehow keep Karn healthy and fed. And what what does that feel like for you personally? And for me, that's that's what I would suggest. And 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 I would suggest to be careful. To, to not worry about what the Buddha, with this historical figure, how it, how it influenced him, but to, again, refocus on what does that feel like for you? What comes up for you? Thank you. And I think you, you also were, we lost you on number two as well. So if you could quickly summarize what you said. I'd be happy to, if you'd remind me what number two was. <laughs> So, um, so number two, like if I were to um, paraphrase it again, so when I, when I ask, when, what I wanted to ask you was, what was, what was the, um, like for example, when we when we paint a painting, explain, understand, where does that come from? Idea as to like what that painting would be. Yeah. So like for this talk, um, like I got the sense that okay, we're trying to kind of explain make sense of everything or, or a lot of things. So for you, like if, if this talk was a painting, what was the, um, what was the idea or the seed for, for it to flower into the talk that it was? Mm, okay. Yeah, what was the seed that um, led me towards uh, being very explanatory? Hmm. Well, again, it's just part of my background, a part of my background that uh, I, I um, was supported by the world to be an explainer. That was part of my professional life for many years. And, um, and I guess, not I guess, but I think part of my practice here at Jokoji and within this community is to um, make space, make space, and not fill it with my own explanations. Ah. Yet I felt something, something about this being invited to sit right here in this chair and talk with you gave me permission to um, uh, exercise that part of me that uh, tries to make sense of things. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of knowing and not knowing. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of explaining or being explained to. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, maybe time for maybe you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Karn. I think maybe time for one more because um, John has rung the uh, lunch bell. And uh, I want to respect the Tenzos 
efforts and enjoy the Tenzo's um, efforts. Um, yes, Kave, I see Kave. Hey, Hogan, I just want to thank you. You blew my mind. That's all. <laughs> I mean, you just kept going and going and going and going. <laughs> Every time I thought I got a handle on it, no, another example, another example, another set of numbers. So it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah, I, I felt like I'm sitting face to face with a Bodhisattva wisdom in some sense. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Kave. That was a nice short one. It wasn't too challenging. <laughs> well, uh, any any loose ends? Um, Connie, can you give us some direction about what's going to happen next? So, um, so what usually happens at this point is that the Jokoji crowd um, disconnects and goes and has their lunch. And so then we can stay on. Um, and uh, chat with each other. Um, and you all can feel free to leave, um, but we can end the, the talk with the chant. I think mm. we could do that. Would yeah, you? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Okay, I'm gonna mute everybody um, except the Jokoji people so that we're not chanting okay. over each other. We'll let you do that. We'll let you get muted. Like, just give us a signal when we're all muted the way we wanna be. Okay. May our intentions equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to know them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.